it's really true that the data that you throw away is the data that tomorrow you might be able to use as part of a machine learning model building exercise that might bring true, true value to an organization. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. We've said in past episodes that we're going to try and begin to dig deeper into the AI and ML topic. So to make a start, today we're talking with Josh Simons. Josh is Chief Technologist for High Performance Computing at VMware and leads the VMware Machine Learning Program Office. Josh is a recognised expert in high performance computing and currently leads the effort in VMware's Office of the CTO to bring the full value of virtualization to high performance compute use cases, especially those in financial services. As you'll hear, HPC is intimately linked with AI and ML, and we're really happy to have Josh with us today. Welcome, Josh. Great to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. Can you give us a quick intro about you and your role at VMware? So I, I actually wear two hats at VMware. I work in the office of the CTO, and sort of my day job, in a sense, is chief technologist for high-performance computing. So I lead our overall efforts around HPC. And then I also run something called the VMware Machine Learning Program Office, which is a, think of it kind of as a coordinating function across the company, really trying to drive us up and to the right in terms of our maturity around AI and ML. All right. So from a career perspective, then, how did you end up here? So I've been at VMware about 11 years. And the reason I came to VMware, I was recruited by Steve Herod, who was a CTO at the time. And he was looking for someone to come in and really explore this issue of whether or not HPC workloads could actually be virtualized with good performance on the platform. And if it could be, would people be interested in that? And here we are 11 years later, and I am still pursuing that vision. It's still very much an unvirtualized space, but we do have customers that are doing it. And we continue to see an uptick in people adopting these technologies for HPC. But that that's really how I got to VMware. So what was your first job in IT then? And how did you end up then here? So my, my first job in IT was in college. I was writing SPSS code onto paper cards and, uh, you know, using card punches and uploading that into a mainframe and running lots and lots of SPSS jobs for a social scientist who was doing historic studies of Providence, Rhode Island. That was where it started in terms wow. of a job. But before that, I got hooked on computers back in high school. I mean, I, that was it. We got a PDP-11, I think it was a PDP-1105 in our high school. And I was hooked from that point on. And it's been computers ever since. Okay. So would you say that was your career defining moment or something else in there? Oh, no, I had something that I think of and I actually talk about as my career defining moment. I call it my aloha moment. And this is when I was working at Thinking Machines Corporation, which is a or was a supercomputer company in the um, Boston area. And it's a long story, but the short version of this was the company went into Chapter 11. It was basically being shut down. An escape pod was created basically for a bunch of people to move off to Sun Microsystems and start doing hardware and software, HPC there. 
And there were the haves and the have-nots, the people that were getting offers from Sun and the peoples that weren't getting offers from Sun, who were going to be left behind to sort of fend for themselves and figure out if there was any you know, remaining business to be had after everyone was sucked out of the company by Sun. And I received an offer from Sun, but I ended up sending a message in the midst of everyone sending all of their goodbye messages to colleagues and whatnot going off to Sun. I sent a message that was titled Aloha, which, as you know, Aloha is both hello and goodbye in Hawaiian. And my point was that I was staying. I was turning down my job offer from Sun and I was going to stay and make a go of it. And the reason that that was a career defining moment for me is that I went from being an, essentially an engineer working on one of our numerous projects to essentially eventually ended up being the architect of our entire effort that we had going forward after the folks left from Sun. And then I kind of got my got to eat my cake and you know got whatever that is I ate my cake I made the cake I ate it or whatever however that expression goes because eventually <laughs> 2 years later they made an, another round of acquisitions and they brought us in to Sun as well and I came in at a much more senior position into Sun than I otherwise would have if I'd gone in the first round yeah aloha very good fun. very good uh, okay fabulous so let's um let's move on to a deep dive and, and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So, uh, look, opening question here. Financial services IT, and, and especially markets, uh, they're synonymous with high-performance computing. Can you let us know, then, the areas that you and your teams are working on supporting that, you know, the customer? Yeah, sure. So the way, the way I look at financial services and in, inter- in its intersection with HPC is there typically two places that it intersects. The first one is in running codes like Monte Carlo codes, for example, where you're doing risk analysis or portfolio modeling, et cetera, and have large compute farms that support doing that sort of thing. So we we certainly focus on the idea of bringing virtualization into that realm to add operational uniformity with the rest of the infrastructure inside of a firm. And we do that You know, it's kind of interesting, kind of one of my pet peeves here is that there's a lot of still a lot of misinformation floating around around what performance looks like when you're running inside of a virtualized environment. And Monte Carlo, in some sense, is kind of the poster child for excellent performance in a virtualized environment because it's really very much straight line compute with some modest amount of I.O. And because of that, it runs at really the same speed, virtualized or unvirtualized. So you get to bring all of the operational you know, simplicity and capabilities to bear by virtualizing it, but you don't lose any performance. So we focus on that. The second area that we focus on is low latency. And that has obvious touch points in financial services. There are a whole range of latency sensitivities for workloads in finance, all the way down to the most stringent requirements where you're looking at, say, a market data platform. And then beyond that, if you're looking at a trading platform and virtualizing a trading platform. So we've done several engagements over the last oh, five years or so to really demonstrate that it is possible to virtualize a, a market data platform and get good performance there, good message rates, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that there are customers who are running their market platforms in a virtualized environment. But the one that's always been out of reach for us is, could we possibly deal with virtualizing a trading platform? Because as you know, 
there are two issues here. It's not just low latency. You absolutely have to have low latency, but you have to have low jitter as well, right? For a trading platform to be useful, that latency needs to be really, really well controlled and very, very predictable. And so over the last, I don't know, N years, we've worked on low latency. And so using things like InfiniBand and Xilinx solar flare cards, you can get very, very low latency in the virtual environment, but it's always been hard to get that jitter under control. But we did a proof of concept with a very well-known financial services house last year, I, I think it was last year actually, where we were able to demonstrate that we were capable of delivering very, very controlled latency and very, very close to bare metal performance for, and it wasn't their trading platform per se, but it was the micro benchmark that they've developed to assess whether or not a platform is useful for running their trading platform. And everyone on the customer side was quite satisfied with the results that we had. And it was really, I think kudos go to our engineering teams that are really at the in the engine room of the platform, the monitor team and the VM kernel team are really looking very, very closely at how to control latency and how to offer this really, really low jitter. So we're quite excited about that. So that's the second area that we pay attention to. And then the third area, because we are an HPC ML team, is that we also pay attention to machine learning workloads. And it's a moving target for us. We, we're in the office of the CTO, so we tend to focus on the next thing, right? So the next thing for a while at VMware was NVIDIA. But NVIDIA, we now have a very deep partnership with them, and that's moved off into the business unit. So now we focus on sort of more interesting startups that are working on interesting technologies that maybe are not in the mainstream yet, but we think have a lot of potential value for, not just for financial services, but you know, a really kind of across the board for anyone that's doing uh, machine learning. So Josh, I, I came from working for, well, both from the, the market side, but also the exchanges side where 10 years ago, they were trying to get you know, trading down to a chip level. You know, how do you see, you've talked about low latency, which is absolutely crucial in the exchanges and the way the exchanges run now. How do you see that convergence of you know, low latency, HPC and ML slash AI in an exchange setting as opposed to a, a pure business capability from a banking perspective? Yeah, that's a question. I'm not sure I have any real insights into that because, I mean, it seems to me that performance is so ultra critical when you're talking about low latency, low jitter environments that it, typically that's not the realm where you would see an AI or ML solution being deployed. There is that, you know, that's going to add additional latency on top of whatever it is that your hardware and your underlying systems adding. So maybe I have a, a failure of imagination here, but I, I see those as being somewhat different and maybe not easily combined. No, I, I totally agree because I think that even uh, I'm going back about 10 years now because I was last working for one of the exchanges. Speed was everything, as you quite rightly said. That low latency and the necessity to deliver that was absolutely fundamental. And that was a differentiator for the new and emerging services at that particular point. So I'm going to ask a question now. You yeah. talked about AI and ML. What's your take on, I think sometimes people say AI, they mean ML, and they say ML and they mean AI. How would you differentiate the two? Yeah, to me, it's pretty clear. It's pretty cut and dried. So AI is an overarching term that really refers to any approach that you take that delivers something that that sort of appears to give you some sort of human-like intelligence, right? And if you think back to the 50s and 60s, uh, when people were, you know, really doing this, 
they had a set of techniques that they were pursuing around rule-based and formal learning uh, processes that they were putting in place to really try to develop this AI capability. But machine learning is a subset, the way I look at it. So machine learning is really about using data to create models that then have the appearance of being an artificially intelligent. And so it's a very different way of approaching things. Rather than handcrafting and coding a clever model that's going to figure out the blocks world and understand how to have a robot stack blocks and whatnot, you just throw massive amounts of data at a learning algorithm and have it kind of figure out the patterns and the approaches for solving the problem that you're trying to solve. So, so really, when people talk about AI ML, they're mostly these days talking, really talking about ML because that's where all the, or maybe the vast majority of the advances are happening right now that are delivering things that kind of look like they're artificially intelligent. Of course, we know they're not really intelligent, right? They're just really, really good pattern recognizers. I think it's far more um, journalistically exciting to cover the AI replacing humans angle rather than the ML let's help make better decisions angle. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, think about it. How many pictures of a cloud do you need to show to a child before a child is an expert at pointing out every other cloud in the sky, right? Compare that to what it takes to actually teach a machine or an algorithm how to actually yeah, identify clouds. We are very, very far away from being able to replace humans in a meaningful way from an intelligence perspective. You know, there are very cool tricks and definitely useful things you can do with ML, but it is not real intelligence. It doesn't have the the resiliency and the depth and the flexibility that you see in, in a human intelligence or animal intelligence for that matter. I'm just going to tell you now, Josh, that I'm going to use the cloud analogy over and over again. I will credit you <laughs> with it because I think that's the best way I've heard that described because it was the best, most simple way. That's, that's fantastic. We, we always get takeaways from this. So um, the ML program office then, you, you say that's that's part of your day job. What does that entail? You know, what are you doing to help us approach ML? Yeah, so so we look at ML as intersecting with VMware particularly, but it intersects with other companies in similar ways. But we look at it as intersecting in three different arenas. And we give those catchy names so we can talk about them. So they're, they're the smarters. So they're smarter businesses. And that is the use by our customers of ML in their environments, right? So for us as an IT provider, that means making sure that our platform allows our customers to run whatever ML workloads they want to run, whether they're doing deep learning or CPU-based ML learning, or whether they're doing inference or training, we want to make sure that customers can run their workloads really well on the platform. So that's smarter businesses. The second one is smarter products and services. And that is looking at these technologies and understanding how we can incorporate them into our IT products and services to deliver a better experience for our customers. So you think about like, especially in finance, you have like really, really high scale infrastructure. It's really difficult. If we're just going to show you the traditional graphs and whatnot of what's happening in that data center, it's really becoming quite difficult or almost impossible for IT folks to really have a complete handle on what's going on in that high-scale environment. So you can imagine that introducing AI or ML, in, in our case, into that environment for things like, you know, simple cases would be like anomaly detection. Uh, so rather than having someone watching a graph to figure out something's going crazy, why not have an algorithm actually flagging that when it actually occurs or doing self-tuning of infrastructure? So there are a lot of places that we can introduce 
these kinds of techniques into the products to really help customers with what they're trying to accomplish with their infrastructure. So that's smarter products and services. And then we're an enterprise like any other company. And so we also are on our own journey around adoption of ML for improving our operational efficiencies, business outcome, technical outcomes. We've built a bunch of models internally inside of R&D that we use pretty much on an everyday basis. So that's smarter VMware. So those are the three lenses through which we look at ML. And the program office is really about kind of coordinating all of that. I mean, the business units definitely own deciding where they're going to put ML into their products and whatnot. But we're more of a coordinating function to make sure that we're not having siloing uh, across the business units where we can avoid it. And also really trying to drive VMware up and to the right on the maturity curve around our own adoption of ML and our capabilities with our data scientists, et cetera. So that's, that's really kind of the, my involvement with ML in the program office. That, that sounds pretty exciting stuff, actually. I'm thinking data could sound boring, but that actually sounds like there's some incredible things going on there. So did you say data is boring? Oh my gosh. Oh, I mean, you know, data is where it, it all happens, be. right? That's the fuel. <laughs> That's the fuel that, that, that runs all this ML stuff. And, uh, you know, we're, <laughs> that's our problem. We've got tons of data, but the problem is, from my perspective, it's scattered all over the place inside the company. And every, it seems like every time we acquire a new company, they come in with another massive data set that they're curating. And uh, one of the challenges we have, and I'm sure many listeners who are adopting ML in their own organizations, you know, w- this would resonate with them. The, the issue is, how do we get our hands around all that data and how do we get it to the point where it is appropriate for building predictive models, right? Just because you have the data doesn't mean that the data has been cleaned and curated and debiased and et cetera, et cetera, so that it's actually in shape to be used for building models. So we're still very much on that journey as an enterprise. I, I think I see the light at the end of the tunnel, but um, we're still in the tunnel for sure. Okay. Well, I was put up to saying that, by the way. That was uh, I, I was told it would get a good reaction from you. Clearly it did. <laughs> it did, yes. <laughs> I remember years ago, there was somebody who worked at EMC, and I, I, I forget his name, unfortunately, who made the comment that chaff is the new wheat. And uh, the point he was making there is that you just don't throw data away anymore. You keep it all. And I think you know, that was wisdom. That was probably like 10 years ago that he said that, maybe longer. Um, it's really true that the data that you throw away is the data that tomorrow you might be able to use as part of a machine learning model building exercise that might bring true, true value to an organization. So I think in some sense, we all kind of need to be pack rats when it comes to our data. Of course, the, the lawyers don't like that because they, they like to have data sort of expiring and being deleted over time. But from an AIML perspective, since it is the fuel that drives all of this, that data is gold. Well, and there's, there's gold in the metadata in, in addition to the actual data, right? Oh, gosh, yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, if, you're, if you think about the way deep learning works, what you, you really do is you take the kitchen sink of data, everything that you have, and you throw it at a very large, typically pretty complex model and see if it can extract any patterns that will be of interest. And it often is the case that that metadata actually can have a signal in it as well. It's not just the data itself. You're spot on, Matthew. That metadata can be quite important. Well, I think just what you, there's, there's a couple of things there that come to mind. Um, how are we looking to co-innovate with our customers and partners around this very topical subject, which they're all driving and accelerating to? So how are we helping them? 
Yeah, there are a couple of different vectors that we pursue from from our team specifically. So we've seen in the data, we've done uh, survey data, that it's very, very clear that customers are doing their ML in multiple premises. They may be doing some of it on-prem, they may be doing some of it in public cloud, and it may be even multiple public cloud venues or edge environments as well. Those are also important. And the reason is that you typically want to do the ML, say the model training, where the data exists. And it's very clear that the data sits in many different places. And so we've been exploring this idea of, we started from an HPC perspective and thinking about HPC as being a very, very on-prem approach that people take. But we are starting to see some signal from some customers that are more forward-looking that using multi-cloud for these types of applications and workloads is becoming important to them. And we see this in ML as well, for the reason that I just said, that the data is spread all over the place. So we actually are involved in a couple of different partnerships with smaller companies, teaming up with them to take the infrastructure as a service layers that we have, including like Tanzu, which lets you get to multi-cloud with Kubernetes, et cetera, and take that and then combine it with essentially a PaaS layer that sits on top of it that allows you to give end users data scientist or an HPC engineer access to that multi-cloud resource as almost a single resource. They don't need to know that their XYZ workload is now running in, say, Google, or it's running on-prem, or it's running in AWS. That's taken care of within the PaaS layer itself. So that's one pretty clear vector that we're seeing from customers in places where we are engaged with partners. Another one I would throw out is Obviously, NVIDIA is a very large player in the AI and ML space, and we are in a deep partnership with them to enable enterprise ML. But it really is true that it's a much larger ecosystem out there beyond NVIDIA GPUs. There are a lot of other hardware accelerators available that we also want to enable on the platform. And CPUs are pretty awesome, actually, for doing a lot of these ML workloads, too. So we have involvements with several startups that are doing some really, really innovative work around milking the absolute best performance, even for deep learning training, for example, but also inference out of the CPU. You know, as Intel and AMD and the ARM ecosystem add new capabilities into the instruction set architecture, it becomes more and more possible to take advantage of those devices. And that's an area that we partner with as well. It's pretty exciting. So I I already asked the firework question, but how about this add-on as well then? So going back into the AI side for a moment, and I think it's particularly relevant in financial services, but I think it could be across all industries. What are your thoughts on the ethics debate, particularly around decision support and, and you know who can get to do what? Yeah, I actually don't feel like there's much of a debate. It seems to me pretty clear that it's important for organizations to have explicit statements about their AI ethics. And this is, you know, it's kind of interesting. Why would I say that? Because most companies take some sort of an ethical stance overall. I and mean, VMware is quite serious about that. We have our epic two values and other things that we espouse as part of the kind of DNA of the company that set the tone for how we act as employees and how we act as a company. The thing is, with these technologies, you know, we talked about having all this data. And if you think about having that data from a conventional perspective, sure, you might put it in spreadsheets, you might do Tableau dashboards, et cetera. You know, you can kind of think about the sorts of things that you might do with that data. But the world sort of explodes when you think about the kinds of things that you might do with predictive models. And it becomes kind of 
I'd say much less obvious the, the sorts of things that you can do with the data that's been collected by an organization like VMware, but certainly folks in financial services as well. You can do a lot more with that. And it, the potential for harm and bad impact as well, I think, increases. Of course, we like to focus on the good that can come from all these technologies, but there's bad that can come from it as well. Things like bias and being unfair to people, even being racially biased, for example. And so for, for that reason, because there's potential harm here and because the, the things you can do with these techniques are perhaps not obvious to people, we think it's really important to have an explicit statement. And we've been working for some time now. It's a work stream that's been running under the um, machine learning program office that, that I'm leading to develop that code of ethics. And as a companion document to that, we're also starting work on what we're calling a practitioner guide, which is meant to be sort of an interpretation of the ethics code itself down to a technical level of detail so that an ML practitioner inside of VMware can really make sure that they are conforming to our ethical requirements in this space. So to, to me, just to reiterate, I think it's critically important for organizations to speak explicitly about this and be very clear with the people or organizations from which you are collecting data. And that, by the way, includes your employees. What is it that you're willing to do and not do with employee information? Think about all the security cameras and whatnot that we have, you know, typically have installed inside our premises for security reasons. What are we willing and not willing to do? So that's a pretty top of mind issue for us is making sure that we have something in place in that area. Yeah, fabulous. So I think this ties back to um, a conversation that we've been having with Tom Kellerman from who's, who covers our cybersecurity strategy and where that kind of takes the criminals and the cyber gangs into how they can exploit these newer technologies for harm uh, or for their own gain. And I kind of think the point you just make is very pertinent. It's not just about what you will and won't do with the data, but just how seriously you're going to take the securing of it. Absolutely. And I don't know why this triggered in my mind based on what you just said, but there's another aspect of this, which I guess you could think of as kind of security that I find very troubling from an ethical perspective, right? So this trend towards using AI algorithms to make decisions about whether people that are in prison should actually be let out on, on probation, for example. That is a very scary uh, trend from my perspective, because what ends up happening, I think, is the dynamic is pretty bad. If the algorithm recommends not letting someone out, and you decide as a parole board that you're going to let someone out based on you know, maybe more nuanced data that you have, if that person actually does commit a crime after they're let out, and someone can now point at the algorithm and say, well, the algorithm actually said you should keep this person inside. That's an issue. So what it means is that people are going to start listening to the algorithm much more closely, maybe to the exclusion of their common sense, and which means potentially, and the, there's potential for bias in these algorithms as well. For example, racial bias has been seen, I think. You end up actually not letting people out of, of prison just based on what the computer told you. And again, this is all just pattern recognition. It's maybe not the best way of making those types of really kind of life and death decisions for people. Okay, so that went a bit more sobering than I was um, was expecting. So, so look, I've I've asked this question before in a different setting, and um, let's do it again. So, the ML side, then, is it just a giant if then else problem? Yeah, you have asked that in other other contexts. I've heard that. Um, <laughs> you know, in a sense, yes, right? I mean, in a literal sense, almost yes, sometimes. And so what, what do I mean by that weird answer? 
So if you think about financial services, at least some of the models that are deployed in financial services need to be explainable, right? So uh, maybe a less dark example than the one that I just gave is if you're building a model that's going to help you make a decision about whether or not you're going to give somebody a loan, right? You kind of need to be able to, yes, you can certainly pay attention to what the model is telling you, but you also would really like that model to be able to explain to you why it came to the conclusion that it did. And in fact, with things like GDPR, you kind of sort of need to have that there, right? You need to be able to explain why the algorithm has made that decision. And things like deep learning models, uh, you know, based on neural networks and whatnot, they are notorious for being black boxes. You, you give them the data and they pop out an answer, but it's really pretty hard to understand why the heck it actually came up with that answer. And there is research there to help with that. And, and I'm expecting over time that will get better. But right now it's not. It's, those are black boxes. And so there are other techniques like decision trees that are much more useful for being able to give an explanation for why a model has actually you know, come up with a particular recommendation. And you can think of a decision tree as really a very multi-level if-then-else statement. That Think of it as a tree, and at every node in that tree, you have a decision, left-right, based on some kind of a conditional statement. In other words, your if-then-else. So yeah, Matthew, I mean, you can think of it as an if-then-else in some cases, but even more conceptually, if you think about a deep learning model, which, as I said, isn't explainable, but it's a massive pattern recognizer, right? It's working in some massively high-dimensional space in making a decision about whether the data that you're giving it falls into this region of that massive high-dimensional space or not, and then doing a classification or a recommendation or something like that. So we think of that as a very, very high-dimensional, very complex pattern recognition operation. But in that high-dimensional space, that kind of is an if-then-else decision as well. It's just happening in this space that we can't really reason about or intuit on. Fabulous. So, um, okay, let's move on. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. Okay, so we're into our crystal ball section. And uh, you know, thinking here, then, what, what do you think would be one of the most significant game changers for you know, technology or for fin- financial services in 2021? And, and how do you think um, you know, they, this approach to technology could help or hinder um, financial services customers? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to pick federated learning. And the reason that I pick federated learning is that it sort of has some magical capabilities that I think are quite interesting to customers, including financial services customers. So it, it has two main use cases. But before I give you the use cases, let me just sort of sketch what it allows you to do. So the typical way that one would build, say, a predictive model in ML is that you would gather all of your data together into a central location, and then you would churn through all of that data and build that model in some data center or some cloud premise. But there are some cases where you kind of don't want to move the data. Either you don't want to or you can't move the data. And one of those instances might be that you have a lot of edge locations. So let's imagine you're doing kind of retail banking and you have a lot of bank locations where there's a bunch of data that you have. And you'd like to take the data from across all of those different locations. And rather than paying the potentially significant cost of 
uploading all of that data out of each one of those branch locations, which could have low bandwidth and high cost, you'd, you'd instead rather build a model that takes into account all the data across all of those locations, but it never moves the data. So it's this kind of distributed, coordinated activity that allows you to build a model that takes into account all the data without moving it. So one reason is you don't want to move the data. Another reason is maybe you can't move the data. So if you're a multinational and you have data that is on citizens in different countries, and again, you would like to somehow combine that data to create a model that takes into account all the global data that you have, you can use federated learning to build that model without violating local country requirements around how that data is stored and how it's used. Another example of how this can be used, which I think the canonical example people use actually is a financial services example, although I'm not sure if anyone has actually done this. You could imagine two firms deciding that they want to essentially combine forces and take the customer data that they have separately and use it to build some massive super fraud detection algorithm that both firms would benefit from. Now, clearly, those firms do not want to share their customer data. So you can imagine using federated learning in this realm as well. The learning happens in a distributed way. The data never leaves the firm's premises, but both firms end up with a model that takes into account all the wisdom that's encapsulated in, in the data that each one of those firms holds separately. So it's a pretty cool set of techniques. It has a lot of deep technical aspects to it around security and privacy and how you maintain the ability to essentially build that globally consistent model, but do it in a way where the data doesn't actually leak out. It's critically important that that data not leak. So I, I think there's, there's a lot of potential for this in not just financial services, but more broadly inside of ML use cases. That's a, a fabulous one. Uh, so I'm going to come back to you another time on that because uh, I think there's a, there's perhaps another angle in there as well. I'd, I'd love to explore some more. Um, okay, so if it's okay, let's move on to the lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. Okay, so this is the kind of the cool down fun bit. Let's just kind of rattle for you a few questions here, Josh. And it's absolutely fine for you to to say pass. If you do say pass, we might have a bit of fun with you. But anyway, uh, it's absolutely fine to say pass. Let's get to know you a bit more. So um, can you tell us your favourite book or movie? Oh, anything by J.R.R. Tolkien. Your favourite one day getaway location and Middle Earth, you can't say. (laughs) If I could make it in one day, I would go to Iceland. But I can't. And so I would probably go, I'm in New England, I'm in the Boston area, I would probably go up north right now to uh, view the foliage. Nice choice. First concert or live performance you saw? Oh, gosh. Um, So I don't think I've ever been to like a big mainstream concert. So the one I'm going to have to pick is a group called Undekoza, which was, I think, Demon Drummers is how that translates from Japanese. These were an amazing group of people I saw back in the 80s who would come to Boston, they would run the Boston Marathon, and then they would do this hugely strenuous drum performance in the evening. And the last I heard of these folks, they were drumming their way and running their way around the periphery of the U.S. They decided that going across the U.S. wasn't tough enough, so they were going to run around. I have no idea if they did it or if the group still exists, but they, (laughs) they were just an awesome, awesome experience. Well, I'm impressed. (laughs) 
Well, I think I know the answer to this question, but we'll we'll ask it anyway. What's your favorite place of all the places you've traveled? Hands down, Iceland. I actually snuck out in this pause between pandemic step N and N plus one with Delta now. I actually took a quick uh, week-long trip to Iceland. It was my fifth trip. I love the place. I can't get enough of it. It's just absolutely gorgeous. So um, who's your mentor or have you been most inspired by? Mm, um, I would have to say my high school math teacher, Martin J. Bedoyan, who passed away recently, but he was just an amazing person. Very, very smart, but he really instilled, I think, very, very high sets of values into all of his students And I've carried those forward through all the many years since I interacted with him in his classes. And I was also on the, I was a mathlete, I was on the math team, and he ran the math team. But he had a huge impact on on my entire life, actually. What piece of career advice do you wish you had given yourself, your younger self? Hmm. So that that sort of implies that there's some unhappiness in my career, (laughs) something I I would have redone. And, And I'm... I, I'm not, I guess if I really, if you really force me to pick something, because it's hard, I would say when Steve Harrod offered me the position to come into VMware, at that time they were not hiring people in as principal engineers, and I was a distinguished engineer at Sun. So I came in as a senior staff engineer, which was a probably six or seven year step backwards in my career trajectory. Title doesn't really matter to me, but that does have consequences. So I probably would tell my younger self to stick to my guns and uh, not make that decision. Although I really wanted to come to VMware and he knew it. So that's not, that's me being a bad negotiator. (laughs) (laughs) So when was the last time you used cash and what was it for? Oh, come on, Matthew. I use cash all the time. I'm an HPC person. That's how you get good performance. (laughs) Oh, you mean the other cash? Oh, the other cash. I always spell cash with a C-H, sorry. Um, I used it to buy a bagel the other day because I wanted change to uh, to give a tip. Oh, fabulous. i got to say, that's the best answer we've had anyway. So uh, I, I, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Last one for me, Josh. You have to sing karaoke. What song do you sing? Oh, my goodness. Without getting into childhood trauma, I have not sung since I was in sixth grade. And by policy, really. But if you're really, really going to force me to do it, which would be my absolute nightmare, I might be able to do Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. <laughs> Who's I love, yeah, yeah. I love the diversity <laughs> of the, the answers that we get to that question. That's great. Thank you. That's fabulous. Look, thanks so much for your time today, Josh. We've learned a lot about important topics and also we've learned a lot about you too. So uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been fabulous and and we'd love to chat with you again. Oh, wow. This was my pleasure. It was a a ton of fun talking to both of you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you. Oh, 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 wait a minute. Hold on a minute. We've missed something really important. We need Josh back. Thank you for jumping back on the call. And so I've been giving a listen to the edit from our session and I realise we've forgotten one of the questions we ask everybody and I'm now going to be in a ton of trouble for not having asked you um, and so um, if I can ask you if you were an ice cream what flavour would you be? Hmm. I would be purple moo which purple is moo. my <laughs> yeah it's my favourite ice cream flavour unfortunately discontinued and but offered uh, used to be offered at a my favourite vegan Uh, ice cream place here in Boston. So Purple Moo revived. Exactly. Oh, fabulous. I can only hope. (laughs) 
All right. Look, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I will tick that off my list. And um, I, I, I have everything I need. Thank you so much. Okay, awesome. A big thank you again to Josh for being such a good sport. And to keep up with his latest work at VMware, please follow him on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll have the links in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team or you can contact us through LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or our podcast at Twitter on dbtbpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you do like our podcast and could leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that would be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or even would wish to appear as a future guest, including the lightning round, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care. <laughs>